Hello, investors. Welcome to another episode of The Six Figure Investor. We are excited to be back with you today after, I don't know, a week or two hiatus. A short hiatus. A but, short. It's, but it's back to school. And so it's back to the podcast. Back to the podcast. And guess what we're talking about today? College and how to pay for it. Which makes sense since it's back to school. Since it's back to school. Awesome. Well, this is going to be a really great episode. Brian just gave me the outline. And so in normal fashion, I read through the notes and I'm ready to dive in on tonight's subject matter. 12 pages of goodness in the outline. He's so lying. He's lying to you that. guys right now. He's lying to you guys right now. It's three pages. It's very robust. I think you'll be much more educated on college planning and college savings at the end of this episode. Hello, and welcome to the Six Figure Investor Podcast. Are you a professional who wants straightforward, trustworthy financial strategies that you can act on? Are you entering your highest income earning years and discovering that your personal finances are becoming too complex? We get it. You're a highly competent professional, but you don't have time to go deep on your personal finances the way you do with your day job. Hi, I'm Brian, and helping professionals make smart financial decisions is my passion. I run a financial advisory practice called The Capital Stewards and work with professionals like you who are trying to cut through the noise. It's time to stop Googling every question you have about money and dive into some real professional guidance. So let's get moving. Hi, everyone. Brian here. In this episode, we're diving deep into the strategy for college financial planning. If this episode sparks something in your own situation that you would like to discuss further, we're happy to help. We host financial planning workshops all the time with parents that are working through challenging decisions around college planning. So if you'd like more resources or professional guidance in this area, schedule an intro call using the link in the show notes, and we'll be glad to discuss next steps with you. Okay, back to the show. All right, welcome back, guys. Let's dive in to college planning and saving to go to school. Yeah, I think this is a really important topic for a lot of reasons. For most families, college is the second most significant purchase for one child, let alone two or three children, as they go through their life. And I think a lot of times we spend more time talking about the next car we're going to buy than we do talking about college. And so I think it's really important that we build a strategy and that we think about it. And, and in this podcast, I wanted to, to kind of take a step back from some of the nuts and bolts and the tax optimization strategies and all those kinds of things. We'll get to some of that at the end. But it's really important that when we think about college, we talk about what it is that we're actually buying. What is the purpose of college for your children? And the answer might be different if you have multiple children. It might be different for each one. I think one of the things that's going to be interesting about this conversation is Maybe this isn't true for everyone, but I, I found in my own college seeking experience and having conversations with my parents about college that we've gotten to a point, probably for a lot of our listeners and investors, that college is a part of the expectation or the desire that they have for their children. And there's not necessarily as much study or kind of nuanced research into colleges as a product themselves that you are buying. Yeah but they are a product and an experience that you are buying and they provide an outcome, which is measured in jobs and all kinds of different measures. And as a buyer of those products and experiences, you have the opportunity to look at the data, do the analysis, find the best solution for you and your family. And, and I think sometimes too often we just 
think of college as a life stage or something that we're committed to doing in order for our children to be set up for success. I think, but there's a lot more. We apply a lot more rigor to our buying process when we go buy a house, I think, than we do college. Like when we go buy a house, yeah. we look at all the, comp, the comps, right, in a neighborhood, right? And you figure out how much you think the house is worth. And then you try to lowball the offer. And then you go through this negotiation process with your real estate agent. When your kids get ready to go to college and you're going to spend generally the equivalent of a small house on college. So it's not that small house, a $300,000 house, depending on where you're going An to average school. house, right? Maybe, yeah, maybe a $300,000 house. And you just sort of get to your kids in your ear and they're like, I want to go here. And you're like, great. And then you sort of cry when you get the financial aid letter. And then like, you're just like, okay, have fun. Here's $300,000, right? Like, and I mean, I think that's where a lot of people are. And so I think, like I said, I think it's important to have a conversation about, you know, one thing you alluded to though, that I think is important is college is about, I think for a lot of people more than just spend money, go to school, get a job to develop return on investment for the dollars that we spend in college. And before we dive into a little bit on like sort of this college worth and things like that, I think it is important to acknowledge that. And I actually think there's value in life in making friends and going to college and finding some of those things and learning about yourself when you move away from home. And there's economic value in the networks that are established in college too. And so that college experience is about more than just the money that you pay to learn some skills to get a job, right? I think it is broader than that. But but I again, I think for every specific student, it's important that we think about how how does the sort of investment in dollars and the school that we're going to and the economic outcome that we want to achieve and then those other life outcomes how does all of that fit together in making a really smart college choice as it put like i said as opposed to either just doing it by the seat of your pants or assuming that that particular math is the same for every person right because it or every be, school yeah or, or every school right i think the, the difference there's differences between different schools and, and people within your family right so it's important I think as a framework, it's important to think about the dollars that we're spending, um, the outcome that we think we might want from a career standpoint on the other side of that. How did the school help get us from, from where we are today to where we're trying to go? And then how do all those other things like the experiential pieces of that and the networking and the friends and how does all that fit into the puzzle? And how do you make that whole picture work for a particular student that's thinking about going to college and we're going to make that investment. How do we make all that stuff fit together? I think that's where we want to try to go as we make a smart college decision with our kids. A hundred percent. So I think that's really well said, Brian. In this vein, there's a lot out in the media and in talk today amongst people that college isn't worth it, that it's no longer going to be a part of the equation, you know, moving forward. Yeah, right. We're just going to watch some courses online when we're 19 and then we're going to get a job and go on from there, right? So maybe we should start there with, if you think about college as an investment, is this an investment that's worth it? So is college worth it? So college graduates still earn more on average than those without degrees. But I think there's a couple of caveats there. So anytime we talk about averages, I think it's important to just be aware of averages. You've got to do the work to align where we are today, where we want to go from a career perspective, where that school is in the middle, the investment that we have to spend to go to that school to make the averages add up. So for example, Brian and I both went to the exact same college a year apart from each other. Brian studied business. That's correct. I studied art history. Not quite. Even Pretty not. close. <laughs> I call it the choose your own adventure. Major. 
what I call All right. It. I studied interdisciplinary studies. Yes. Upon graduation, I would say you were probably making twice as much money. Close. Round numbers. Sure. I don't know. And that had nothing to do with, I mean, it did maybe to an extent had to do with the school, but probably not. The school's probably a neutralized idea here because we went to the same school and had way more to do with what we studied studied and thus what we were qualified to do professionally after graduation. Correct. So I think what you're saying here is on average, college graduates will make more than those who don't have degrees. But what you study in college and what you do professionally after college matters in that equation. So if you study engineering, math, stats, some of these subjects where you're more likely to have a high income profession upon graduation than art history or interdisciplinary studies where you might end up in the the world, (laughs) where you might end up in the nonprofit world, for example, you're going to make more or less than that average. Yeah, that's 100% right. It it really, I think what determines that post college outcome has a lot to do with your student, what they study, how they apply themselves, much more than just that they went to college. So therefore some outcome should happen, right? And even which college they went to. Yeah. Right. So let's let's talk about do elite colleges matter? Does it matter if we go to Harvard or if we go to the most expensive private school we can find or can we get by in state school? <laughs> what does the data say? So so what does the data say? There are professions where school matters, business, some of the liberal arts majors that have a tendency maybe to study something like history and then go on to graduate school or to law school, something like that. The prestige of the school has a major impact on your future earnings expectations. There's network benefits or things where it matters. But for other other fields, uh, like science, technology, engineering, math, STEM, it largely doesn't matter whether you go to a prestigious expensive school or a lower priced one. The expected earnings over time turn out to be the same. So you may be wasting money chasing a really expensive diploma in some of those fields. Again, so it, what matters is thinking about what your student is going to study and where they're going to go and making sure that those two things match up. I think what's also really important here is it's not just about the quality of the school, but by the dedication of the student in that environment and whether they apply themselves and do well in their area of study, sort of despite where they go to school. 100%. Yeah, I think the research, all the research shows that if your students apply themselves when they go to school, A, they'll do better on sort of some of the standardized testing and things that have been done, which makes sense. The harder you work, the more you learn. But they probably also get better grades. They do things while they're in school to distinguish themselves. And then on the other side of that, when employers are looking at students and what their track records are, their track record is going to maybe look better. And so they're going to have a better result. I think the question that comes up for me here, Brian, is so often, though, for these 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, when we're looking at college for them, they don't have a clue what they want to do. Yeah. Or maybe they do, but in year two, they're going to change their major because they suddenly realize they don't want to be pre-med because they hate biology. So (laughs) how do you manage that dynamic? Yeah. I don't know that there's a perfect way to measure the unknown, right? Which is, Hey, what happens if my child changes direction? I think the best way is to maintain financial flexibility or thinking about school. And so if we don't borrow you know, through the roof in order to go to school or we're not going to a school that is absolutely at the tip top of the budget, that gives us the flexibility when something inevitably does change, whether, whether it's changing a major, staying for an extra year, 
changing to a different school, right? If, if you're making a wise decision on the front end and you're not stressing the budget too much to just get to that school, then that gives you some flexibility as you go through. And I think that kind of wraps up this important theme for the content we've discussed thus far, which is different colleges are going to be the right solution for different individuals and their families. And there's nothing right or wrong about that. It's really more about that family getting together on what their goals are and what their goals are not. And identifying the product, the university or college that is best going to, you know, meet their needs and help them achieve the outcomes that they've stated. Yeah. I, I think in summary, what I would say is sending your child to the most expensive school isn't how you set them up for success. Helping them find the right school for their particular future is how you set them up for success long-term, both financially and in life. Before we go a lot further, I think we should just do a quick aside about what about the student who maybe is having really serious conversations with their parents about not going to college? I also recommend having a really serious conversation with your kids if they say that they aren't planning on going to college about standard of living. How much does it cost to have your family's current standard of living that they've sort of grown accustomed to as they've grown up? It might be time in those situations to get really real with them about numbers on, you know, especially in higher income households. What does that cost, right? And how much do blue collar jobs pay in your area, the the things that they think maybe they want to do instead of going to college? And are they okay with the standard of living that that might provide? Again, I think going to college, making a smart decision about going to college is probably a better economic decision than not going to college. The one thing that comes to mind that maybe is an exception to this is it feels today like there are increasing careers and fields, for example, coding comes to mind. Yeah, sure. Where having a college education doesn't necessarily matter in that industry. And the some of the most successful people in that industry don't have degrees. It's really about this experience of being a coder and the languages that you know and those kinds of things. What I would suggest is beware of statistics. You know, like everybody says, oh, well, you can, maybe you'll drop out of Harvard and start Facebook, right? And become Mark Zuckerberg. That's really not the average, right? And if that one thing that your student doesn't want to do, right, say the coding thing doesn't work out, well, now they didn't go to college and where, what do they have to fall back on? And so, so maybe that's a situation where somebody takes a gap year and they try to pursue something and you see, are, are they really good at it? And can they really get paid to do it and those kinds of things? And if not, maybe they go to college, right? So I think there are some ways maybe where you can, you can check to see if that might be the right path where there's still some kind of guardrails in place, you know, before you just sort of send them off to the world. Yeah. I know for us, for example, before we went and got our MBAs, you came home, Brian, and said, you know, I think I want to do this. And in order to do that, most of the people who do it get an MBA and I want to go get an MBA. Yep. And it was sort of following the same model of I am at point A and I want to be at point Z. And the most commonly successful path yeah, to sure. get from A to Z is to get a master's in business. And I want to go do that, both for the education that I would get while I was there and for the network benefit of being in that kind of environment that's going to help set me up for the career opportunities that I would need to get in order to move in my career in this fashion. If you have a child that doesn't, you know, is thinking they want to do something different besides school, you know, if they want to pursue coding, have them pursue coding for a little. Talk to people that are in the industry where maybe they could get a job. Maybe they start doing that over the summer when they're a junior in high school or something, right? sort of start to learn how that works. And, and if, there's a, if there's something there that works and they talk to enough people and they really understand how that industry works and they feel like they get a hold of it and they don't need to go to college, 
then, you know, maybe they can do that. But I think the more research they do ahead of time, the better off they're going to be. So I think this brings us really to this dynamic around the family and having conversations earlier on about what it is that we're doing, what it is that we're investing in, what is the outcome that we want. You talked about how, you know, investing in college is like buying a house, a $300,000 house potentially. And you talk about that extensively with your spouse and members of your families, but we don't necessarily do that when it comes to college and university spending. So how do you think about, you know, getting on the same page with your spouse, having the conversations with your kids? Let's talk about that next. Yeah. I think that the first question that I ask a lot of couples when they come and sit down and we start talking about long-term planning is, are you and your spouse on the same page about paying for college? Oftentimes spouses aren't. You've got one spouse who's saying, we're going to pay for college in full. And no matter what the bill is, we're going to send them there. And then you've got another spouse who's like, no, our kids are working their way through school just like I did. Right. And neither of those answers is a bad answer, but we've got to be on the same page about it so that we can make smart decisions as we go over the long term. I think a lot of people spend, like I said earlier, more time talking about their last car purchase than they do sending their kids to college, which is funny because it's it's a you know multiple of the of the spend level. Yeah. I mean, I think if we look at our own family, we've got three kids. And <clears throat> if yeah. we send them all to in-state public schools, say that's thirty thousand a year. So if it's thirty thousand dollars per year, that's hundred and twenty thousand dollars in total times three kids, that's $360,000. Yes. And that's if our kids all go to in-state public schools. If they went to private schools, we could be talking upwards of $900,000. Yeah. That's a or something in, in the neighborhood there for sure. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. And, and so it's important that you, that you sit down and, and talk about it with your spouse and that you get on the same page about it. And again, there's not a, a right or a wrong answer, but it's important that you have the conversation. And, and I think as a family unit, it's important that you have that conversation in light of all of your other savings goals, right? So maybe we do want to send our kids wherever they want to go for college, you know, at our expense. Can we do that and still save for retirement and pay down debt and do all of the other things that we need to be doing as a, as a family to provide the kind of solid foundation that, that we need to have, right? If we send our kids to college and then we have no money left over for retirement afterwards and we're living in our kid's basement, I don't know that they're necessarily going to be happy about that outcome, right? <laughs> so as a family unit, it's important that you guys talk and, and get on the same page about college planning and how that fits in with your larger set of financial goals that you're trying to accomplish. I think that's important, but I also think it puts, you know, some responsibility on the kid, Yeah. you know, as they're going from middle school to high school, to preparing for college, to going to college, um, whether they're going to be paying or not paying, ensuring that they're investing their, you know, like sweat equity to the extent that you're investing your dollars in their education. So maybe we talk a little bit about how do we set the stage then with our kids when it comes to college and, and saving for college? Yeah, I think it's really important that we're having this conversation with our kids earlier, maybe than we're necessarily predisposed to have it, which is like either never or like around high school graduation. Um, th- there's a couple of things that I think are important. So first, I think the right time to have this conversation, honestly, is in eighth or ninth grade. And some people worry about introducing money and the concept of like socioeconomic status into our kids' lives too early on. All the evidence, though, shows that by middle school, like most kids have sort of figured out where they stand in the world by themselves. If they're the most well-off kid in school, they probably know that. If they're on the lower end of the spectrum, they probably know that too. And they want help be part of the family, not be a tax on the resources that you don't have. And so just avoiding the conversation doesn't help. So I think it's important to have those conversations earlier 
rather than rather than later as we go through school. And then I, I think we can talk about things early on, like how sports and extracurriculars and grades matter when we get to that college decision. That doesn't mean we have to put a ton of pressure on them, you know, in the, when they're a freshman in high school to make straight A's. But I think making sure that they understand, hey, the the effort that I put in in high school is going to potentially impact the number of options I'm going to have down the road when I get ready to go to school. I think it's an important thing for them to know, as opposed to finding out again when they're a senior and not being able to do anything about it and wishing they could go back to their you know, freshman year of high school and study a little bit more. And probably all kids will have that happen a little bit. But I think if you can have that conversation with them earlier, at least they can decide what they you know, want to do or not do. And, and you know, just like we talked about college, they're going to have to put the work in themselves to do it. We can't, you know, we can't push them all the way through the process. Another thing that comes up frequently when I talk to people is we got parents that are on that end of the spectrum where they say, Hey, I want to save for college and I'm going to send my kids to the greatest school in the world. And then we start talking about their, their student. They're like, well, you know, they're kind of cutting class and they're not going to school all the time. And so I'm sitting here saying, man, you've got aspirations to send your kids to some of the most selective schools in the world, but it doesn't seem like your kid is going to get into the most selective school in the world. And so there's like, we, we've got to get this alignment between the kind of student that you have, the kind of effort they're going to put in in high school and subsequently in college and the dollars that you're saving and making sure that all those things are, are matching up. And then lastly, about talking to your kids, I think just because you're having the conversation with them doesn't mean that you're giving up all the decision-making power either when they get to be a junior or a senior in high school. It should be quite the opposite. When they turn 16, they don't get to choose to spend all of your money on the sports car so that they can go really fast, wreck it, and be unsafe, right? And the same thing should happen when we think about spending a quarter of a million dollars for college too. We want to have a lot of influence in that conversation and help them make a smart decision just because they feel like they want to go to a really expensive conservatory and study dance and borrow a ton of money to do it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right decision, right? Yeah, it's kind of amazing because we're letting these students make such a huge financial decision for both their parents and themselves in many cases, because we know the majority of Americans are carrying an immense amount of student debt. And we're doing that with people who oftentimes haven't even managed their own money, let alone a household's amount of money. And just starting them off on a really poor footing when it comes to kind of their economic economic standing in the world. Yeah. And I think it's, it's okay to say sort of no, or what I like and really recommend is it's okay to say, here's the amount of money that we've saved. Here's how much we can contribute on an annual basis out of our income. Um, now, as we talk about schools, you've got to keep that in mind because just because you want to go somewhere that's more expensive than that doesn't mean that we're going to be able to help you do that. And we may also may not be comfortable co-signing on loans for you to borrow to the hilt to do that thing that you really want to do that we don't think is a good idea. either. So you've got to have a really important, sometimes challenging conversations, I think, with your kids, both when they're earlier in high school and then also when you get to that time, junior, senior year around that, that college application and decision making process. And I think this really naturally ties to college aid, because I think there's so many families, Brian, that go in expecting they're going to get more financial support, whether it's through (laughs) academic scholarship, athletic scholarship, you know, government dollars, state funded dollars, like whatever the case may be. And I think that a lot of families, maybe surprisingly so, find there's not as much financial support that they thought there was going to be for these pretty hefty bills. Yeah. So let's just talk about athletics for just a minute. So 2% of high school athletes get some form of scholarship to college. And most of those are way less than a full ride. And I think another thing to think about is even if you get a 50% athletic scholarship for a school across the country, all you've probably really done is paid the difference between that school's out-of-state tuition 
and the in-state tuition at a school where you didn't get an athletic scholarship. So, you know, unless you have a really elite athlete in a particular sport that's in demand, the odds are pretty small that you're going to get an athletic scholarship. So I wouldn't necessarily plan around that. And hey, if it happens, then it'll be really nice, right? The same thing is true a little bit with need-based aid. If you haven't been through the process of filling out this really complicated thing called the FAFSA, you'll likely be surprised when you find out what your expected family contribution is. And it's going to be way more than than you think. And the reason for that is because the government basically assumes that you need a very minimum level of assistance for your family. You can spend 5% of all your total assets on college every year. And after you've contributed 5% of your assets and you meet that basic level of subsistence for your family, 20 to 40% of everything else can be spent for college. And I don't know very many people who can redirect 30 or 40% of their monthly income to pay for their kid to go to school. And so if you're a sort of an upper middle to upper income parent, it's very likely that the expected family contribution is going to be a lot higher than what you're actually prepared to come out of pocket for, which is why we need to save, you know, for many years to be able to afford college. Side note, Brian and I are extensive knowers of the FAFSA. Of the, of the expected family contribution. We met, did because we meet in the financial aid office? We met working, maybe not met. We both worked in the financial aid office at Barry College as undergrads, and it was one of the ways that we met when we were in school. In fact, Brian was my boss. So we sure. had an illicit relationship. I made 25 cents more an hour in that student work program, I think, than you made. So <laughs> that was the beginning of our, our income gap disparity. It was yeah. 25 cents. We filed a lot of FAFSAs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and virtually nobody came into the office and said, man, I'm so amazed at the amount of money that the school is giving me. Right yeah, now. that, that conversation never, never happened. happened. Right. Colleges are businesses as well. I think if you haven't figured that out yet, they are businesses, even though they're nonprofits. And so they've figured out how to price discriminate, just like every other business. And so what that means is they're going to use the information that they have, the FAFSA and their sticker price and all the different things they can do, the grants, the scholarships to try to figure out how do I get the most students here at the highest price point possible? That's what they're trying to do on their end. And so, you know, their, their job is not necessarily to help you go to school, although they sort of will say that their job really is to maximize revenue college. And they pretty much use grants and scholarships as like a discounting process in the same way that there are different prices for seats on a flight. Yeah, there. I mean, the, the college is trying to entice the most competitive students to go to school there. And so they're going to give grants and merit awards and academic scholarships to reduce the price to the most competitive students. And if you're more of an average applicant or maybe even a top third applicant, you're just in the pool with everybody else. And if most of those people can afford to just write the check to pay the bill, then that's where you're going to be as well. So... What if you've gotten to that point, Brian, you're listening to the show, you already have teenagers and you haven't saved. Yeah. So again, this goes back to that conversation of what is college for? What are we trying to accomplish by going to school? And so we just need to think about where we're going to be able to go and how much we're going to be able to spend through that lens. You might need to look at in-state public universities. Like we talked about earlier, you can still have an awesome career and do really amazing things going to a public school. Maybe you've got to work through school. A lot of people did that. I, I think it's a little bit challenging maybe to say, I'm going to work and totally put myself through school now the way that it was. 
um, back in the, you know, maybe the seventies or even the eighties. But I do think it's possible for students to work and earn part of their tuition or earn their room and board, things like that while they're going through school. Obviously applying for scholarships is really, really important. You can put it on your student and say, Hey, here's what we can contribute. If you want to spend more than that, you need to, you know, you need to go find scholarships and write letters and do all the things you can to try to search for student aid. There are loans and, and public loan forgiveness. And so if you have a student who is really confident about what they're going to go do, and again, you've got to be the judge of, is this, you know, a fad for today or do we really want to be a nurse, right? You know, or go into medicine or go into education. Some of those places you can take out loans and go to school. And then those are forgiven if you're in a particular field over a long period of time, going into the military is another great option as well, right? The ROTC program will pay for you to go to college, but you're making a commitment the day you walk into that program to serve in the military for eight years. And if you're not willing to do that, you're going to end up owing all of that money back and you're going to owe it back really quickly. And so those are serious career commitments that you're making on the front end, but there are ways that, that you can pay for college maybe if, if that's the direction that you're going to go. And then the last option I think is taking out loans. Whether it's appropriate or not, I think, again, depends on your student, the school that they're going to go to and what their career aspirations are. It might make sense to borrow $50,000 to become a leading engineer and graduate from Caltech. It might. It might not make sense to borrow $50,000 to study art history, right? You know, so that isn't good or bad. It's good or bad in specific situations. And you've got to use your judgment and help your students use their own judgment that's being developed on whether that might make sense for make sense for them. One thing I think I would note here, I struggle personally to think that borrowing just to go to a higher ranked school is, is the right answer. If you can get the education that you want at a reputable school with a good track record, I think, I think the evidence would show you that simply studying the same thing at a school that's ranked higher and having to borrow a ton of money to do it is probably not going to produce a good economic outcome. All right, then let's talk about saving. So I, I think if we've established that we're going to make a smart decision about the kind of school that we need to go to and how much we're going to spend to do it, the question then is if we've got some time between now and when college is, whether that's a decade or even three or five years, how much do we need to save to do this? So I just ran some, some quick math earlier. And if you've got a, a newborn, right, so we've got 18 years between now and school, and they're going to go to the least expensive schools, those in-state schools that cost twenty dollars to $30,000 a year. That's saving $250 a month every single month between now and when they turn 18 in order to be able to pay for all of their education. And that number goes up to $650 a month if you're going to pay for all of their education at some of the most elite private schools in the country. And so that's kind of what you're looking at is somewhere between $250 a month to $650 a month every month for 18 years in order to completely finish somebody's education and, and probably saving for 100% of somebody's education is not maybe the best plan. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but I think it's just helpful to kind of set that framework of this is a lot of money that needs to be devoted to this consistently every single month in order to meet, you know, those in order to meet education goals. And I'm guessing that you're going to say that money should be saved in the Pac-29 plan. How yeah. true or false? Yeah, that's true. For most people, I think the 529 plan is the best vehicle for college savings. There are other things that are out there. You'll hear Coverdale or education savings accounts that have been around a little bit longer. There's income limits on those. And you know, unless you've got a unique situation around like saving for K through 12 expenses or things like that, that's generally not as good as a 529 plan. I also hear folks 
in an IRA or a Roth IRA because the contributions are tax deductible. Whereas a 529 plan, they're only tax deductible in at the state level, and that only applies to certain states. The problem with a with an IRA or Roth IRA is, is generally that there's income limits, so a lot of people can't use them to start with. And if you're also saving for retirement, you know the dollars that you can put in there are limited, and so it's, it it seems to me to be very difficult to save for college and for your retirement inside of an IRA over, over the long term. So a 529 plan is where most people are going to start. What's interesting is according to Sally May, only about a third of parents actually use a 529 plan when they save for college. So the government has created this vehicle for folks to use, but only a third of people are, are using it. And so when you're, if you're wondering if everybody else around you has saved exactly what they should for college in a 529 plan, they must have done this clearly, right? Because they're sending their kids to those really expensive private schools. The answer is two thirds of them have. So you're, if you haven't saved as much as you wanted, you're actually in the majority. And, and what we want to do is start having those conversations and figuring out the right amount to be saving now, not down the road. What else can we say about 529 plans? So 529 plans, the contributions are generally deductible on your state income taxes. And that's true in Alabama and Georgia. In Tennessee, there's not a state income tax, so there's nothing for you to deduct from. But so there is a nice tax benefit. You can open one for each of your kids. So we have three kids. So we have three 529 plans. I mean, everybody can contribute, grandparents, friends, anybody who wants to help send your kid to college or be part of this really small house of an education that you're going to buy down the road. I actually recommend having one 529 plan in your family for each kid and then having grandparents or friends or anybody else contribute to that plan instead of other folks having lots of 529 plans out there. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that. One is those, those withdrawals can be treated differently when that child gets to college if a grandparent or somebody else owns a 529 plan on their behalf from an income perspective, and we want to minimize that. And then secondly, it's just really difficult to plan when you're not really sure how much is being saved for someone to go to college. And I've, I've heard this before too. I say, hey, I'm going to you know, tell Johnny when he got to high school graduation that I've been saving all this money for him to go to college. Well, by the time he gets to high school graduation, grandparents, this is for you, He's probably already decided where he's going to go to college. And if you had $50,000 to give him, you probably would have liked to have known that like six or eight months ago. Um, and so I, I think- At least um, six or eight months yeah, ago. Yeah. And, and it's, and I mean, that sounds like kind of crass. I've seen that happen, right? And so I think it's important if you're saving, let people know that you're saving. And, and if you can, I think consolidating 529 plans down. Anybody, like I said, anybody can contribute to a 529 plan. And the other benefit is if you have, you know, maybe one of your older children doesn't go to college, you can roll that money between children. There's no- tax penalty for doing that. And so there, there is some flexibility there, you know, to move money from older kids to younger kids if, if you need to. So contribute to those plans, have one for each, each of your children, and then everybody can, can put money in there. And that'll be a great vehicle for saving for college. I think that my parents may have done something like that, where mine was more fully funded than my yeah. the middle child was more fully funded than their last child. And in the end, it did give some flexibility, right? because I got some scholarship money. So there was potentially some money left over in my 529 that they could then roll to a sibling. Talk a little bit about yeah. what is like the ideal target, Brian, for you know, what the percentage of the total bill is that you have saved when you start? Yeah, so I, I actually, because there are penalties for withdrawing non-education money from 529 plans, we don't actually want to overfund them. So I think it's a really good idea to save maybe 100% of what you expect for your oldest child to go to college. If you only have one, we can talk about that in a second. And then maybe it's more like 60 or 70% for your younger children, right? And then you can roll money down as kids go to college. And if you end up having to come out of pocket a little bit in their last couple of years of school, I think that's an okay thing. We would rather that happen than have money left at the end in a 529 plan that we have to pay a penalty on or have 
children decide not to go to school and then we have all this money in a 529 plan that, that we can't use. So so I would I would underfund it a little bit, particularly for for younger, younger children. If you only have one child, I think that's where it's more challenging. Maybe it's maybe it's putting 60 or 75% in a 529 plan and then saving the rest outside, you know, like outside in, in a in just a standard brokerage account. So you're still saving, right? I think it's still really important to save, but maybe not putting all of it in a 529 plan is a good risk mitigation tool. Awesome. So we've gone through a lot of content today. Do you want to kind of like wrap it up for our listeners and kind of bring together the most salient point or two? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things. I think the first thing is there's no right college decision for everybody, whether you should go to an expensive elite private school or whether you should go to a less costly local state community college, something like that. I think what is important for everyone is to align where their student is academically going into college, where they think they want to go using what we know about them and their history and all those kinds of things. And the college decision that we're making and making sure that we're not making a bad economic decision for their particular goals. And that might be different in your family for all of your different kids. The second thing I would say is you need to have conversations about college saving with your spouse, with your kids sooner rather than later. Make sure everybody's on the same page. We talked a lot about that. There's some good things in here that you can use to spark some of those conversations. And then lastly, the answer is safe. We know that college is really expensive. It's not going to get cheaper. It's not probably going to go away in this generation. And so the best thing you can do is start saving, figure out what's comfortable for you that allows you to meet all of your financial goals and start saving every month in a disciplined way so that you can afford those expenses when they happen. Awesome. Such a robust conversation on planning and saving for college. We thank our listeners so much for tuning in to today's episode of Six Figure Investor. <coughs> As always, you can reach out to Brian at thecapitalstewards.com if you have additional questions right. or things you want to talk through. And yeah, and we, we do workshops for folks about college planning all the time. So if you're interested in having a more detailed conversation about how much to save and how to maybe align college with all of your other financial goals, we're happy to have a, a conversation about that as well. Awesome. Thanks, friends. See you again soon. The commentary provided is for general audiences and educational purposes only. It should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice for your specific situation. That's why you should talk to a professional. Hello. Past performance of market results is no assurance of future performance. All the information on the podcast has been obtained from sources we deem reliable as of the date of this recording, but it's not guaranteed.